Welcome to the American Democracy Lab. I'm your host, Alan Lambert. Today, we're joined by David Cunningham from Sociology and Jeff Ward from the Department of African and African American Studies. We cover a lot of ground, beginning with election integrity and what we can do to improve access for historically disenfranchised groups. There's some larger dynamics here, too. For example, monuments are symbolic and little reminders of our past, and different structures can send different messages about inclusion or, in some cases, exclusion from the political system. Our guests do a great job tying all this together, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So, Jeff, let's begin with you. The debate over voting rights is obviously not new. Over the last year or so, however, we've been hearing a lot about this issue, especially as it pertains to concerns over the disenfranchisement of people of color. Just recently, for example, Governor Brian Kemp passed a highly controversial law. Supporters of the bill say it will help protect election integrity. However, many others, including some Republicans, have argued that this is actually designed to disenfranchise and discourage people of color from voting. So, Jeff, I'd like to get your take on this. Is it mostly about voting access, or in your mind, is this indicative of a larger set of issues? Well, I think the question of voting access is about a a number of issues. The formal right to vote is obviously an important one, but it is, in a sense, less important, I would argue, than some more fundamental issues, including um, basic question of respect. And, uh, and one reason we see this, I think, recycling over time is because while a formal redistribution of rights regarding voting was achieved through civil rights reform, a transformation of our political culture such that non-white populations in particular are respected as having standing within the polity has not been achieved so clearly. And this raises, I think, a really important question, which is what do we mean by the integrity of the political system? And by extension, what is it that conservatives seek to conserve? And I brought up this issue of respect because we see over and over again this idea of the will of the people being constrained to define some people as having a kind of will, a political will that warrants recognition and respect uh, and representation uh, also by elected officials and other, other people being consistently constructed as, in a sense, not people uh, from a political point of view, and therefore having no rights, the government, uh, its representatives are, are bound to respect. I mean, we, we saw this recently in the state of Missouri with the state legislature just deciding that it's not going to back the will of the people. It has done this over and over again, a number of issues around, you know, gerrymandering and, and so on, but most recently with uh, with healthcare uh, expansion, notwithstanding the votes of support, which was largely driven by urban populations, the Republican-dominated legislature simply said, "We're uh, we're not going to do our job. We're not going to do the will of the the will of the people in enacting this policy change." You know, this is this is to me a much deeper issue of integrity of our political system, not the integrity of the of the kind of the ballot box or the integrity of election day, but really the, the integrity of our representative government as a model. Who does it represent? Who does it recognize as warranting recognition? You know, who, who do we see as the people? We've seen this cycle where, you know, people will say, post post civil rights reform, people will say, well, 
if you don't vote, you can't complain about policy. And then um, voters are mobilized. <laughs> and then we hear, well, then we see that if, you, if, if people do vote, we'll complain that they voted and find ways to make that more difficult. And then there will be a repeat of the cycle where those in power will say, well, if you don't vote, you can't complain, having made it more difficult to, uh, to vote. So this is, this is, I think, to me, clearly a much bigger issue than who gets to submit a ballot. Uh, it's a deeper issue with respect to our political culture. This may be a, a difficult question to answer, but broad strokes, would you characterize this as the, the main dynamics is one of race or ethnicity or is it more about politics or would you say it's about both? I think it's about the politics of race and uh, how race relates to ideas of power and, and relationships of power. It's not only about race and ethnicity, it's about other politics of difference as well. And, and it's a really complicated relationship. I mean, there's, there is you know, active suppression through policy and so on um, and through the intimidation of voters and that kind of thing. But there's also you know, evidence, you know, David and I have been doing work for a number of years now on legacies of historical racial violence. One of those legacies that have been observed is, is suppressed voter turnout in areas distinguished by histories of racist violence. And we think that this has to do with a kind of estrangement that occurs in these, you know, I've written about these as microclimates of racial meaning. These are places where the meaning of race has been shaped significantly by histories of racist violence in various forms. And um, one consequence of that is that the state is viewed as, uh, as illegitimate or there is perhaps fear, um, distrust, you know, fear of reprisal in these particular locales more so than in others. Um, and so it, insofar as that's the case, a history of racialized violence is shaping a, con a context where different polities are more or less inclined to participate in electoral processes, you know, in part because they simply are more skeptical, I would imagine, about the, uh, the benefits of doing so, not only because it might not translate into policies that um, address their interests, but also because of their potential uh, cost. And, you know, just to be clear to listeners, a lot of historical racial violence was motivated by the suppression of political participation, whether it was voting or uh, social movement organizing uh, and the like. So the politics of race has, have, have always been bound up with violence around political participation. Interesting. Um, I'd like to swing back to that later on in this podcast, but for now, um, just want to transition to uh, David here a little bit. So David, the January 6th insurrection was an inflection point around the struggle for national identity. And so we saw a segment of our country organized around white nationalism and differences in police response to the event in comparison to the Black Lives Movement. Um, so you've researched hate groups and their enduring impacts on contemporary issues. So what do you think accounts for these differences? Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate being able to be here talking with you both today. I feel like the insurrection on January 6th is, is important for a couple of reasons. One, because of what it represented as an event and because of the violence that occurred there, because of the challenge to our democracy that occurred there. But it's also, I think, an important window into broader political process. Um, 
you know, Jeff talked about the, the politics of race being reflected in these sorts of actions. And I think the insurrection was really important in this sense. Uh, I've studied for a long time the, the policing of protest. And one of the things that I think is really important about the policing of protest is that it's really police and state policy playing out in public, right? The, these are uh, uh, mobilizations by the police in response to perceived threats uh, presented by social movements or people who have grievances in some way. And so we see what we see playing out in those settings, I think oftentimes are emblematic of things that go on behind the, behind the scenes or that we suspect as abstractions. Oftentimes we see them playing out concretely. And so, you know, what we see on January 6th, and I think most of our listeners know this by now, it's really, it's still uh, unfolding in terms of news stories here in terms of what was known, but it's quite clear and increasingly clear that there were advance warnings given to the Capitol Police uh, ahead of January 6th um, with the Stop the Steal rally, that violence was going to be likely, and not only violence in general, but that Congress itself was going to be the target. This wasn't in a situation where protesters and counter-protesters were potentially doing violence to each other, but this was actually a target, which was our, our Congress. Um, and despite those warnings, we see that just ahead of the event, Capitol Police were told, and the word came down, that there are, quote, no specific known threats that were associated with violence. Um, and what that meant from a policy standpoint is that heavier and less lethal tools that the police do have available to them and that we see them, unfortunately, using with, with frequency otherwise, were not to be deployed that particular day. Interesting, David. Um, I want to connect back to what Jeff was saying, um, but just I want to follow up just a little bit with what you're talking about threat. So in American history, there have been some examples in which threat seems to bring Americans together. And I guess one example that's good as any is the 9-11 attacks, and at least for a few months or perhaps a uh, little longer than that, it did seem to bring Americans together. Uh, liberals and conservatives at least seem to be united or cooperating on some uh, basic issues. That coming together effect certainly did not seem to be occurring with the insurrection. And in fact, on the contrary, uh, everything about that event um, seems to have uh, made liberals and conservatives even more polarized. So can you just maybe say a little bit about your thoughts about threat and its capacity to bring people together as opposed to splinter them apart. Sure. I mean, I, I think one key thing is that when we talk about threat, what we're what we can really think of is that this is when people perceive that they're being threatened, and almost always that they're being threatened as a member of a group, this is something that really sets and solidifies boundaries. And the important thing is is where those boundaries really fall. Um, what is the collective in question becomes really important. And when you see an event, as you mentioned, like 9-11, you know, clearly the framing of that and the predominant understanding of that was that America as a nation was attacked and the boundary was really quite solid in terms of thinking about external threats. Um, but the nation itself was, was uh, seen as uh, unified in terms of being threatened under that particular frame. You know, what we see here is clearly something that really is uh, the boundary is all about the, uh, the cleavage within. 
Um, and we can, it, it's easy and, and maybe uh, too evident to think of the inflammatory rhetoric and the claims that President Trump was making about the illegitimacy of the election as really solidifying that. But I think uh, the, the roots of that go well beyond that particular rhetoric and that particular day. Um, you know, I think really this is a broader challenge, again, to who should be a legitimate part of the citizenry? Who is the government representing? And when we see from the right at this point, um, the sense that the, the government is actually not legitimate, in effect, that's a claim that they're representing people who shouldn't have equal standing. And, and this is really when we see the, the kinds of uh, voting rights uh, restrictions in Georgia and elsewhere that Jeff was talking about and that you were asking about at the top of the episode, I think we really see these instances where the logic that undergirds these splits are really about who should be included and who should be excluded from that process. Interesting. So let's bring Jeff in on this discussion a little bit. So what I'm getting from this is that there are, um, amongst other differences, there's differences in the way that people on the left and the right and also people of color as opposed to whites sort of their uh, view on history um sort of that the conflict seems to be differences in the way that people are remembering history what's happened and also about uh differences in in the direction they that they like to go in the future so i guess let me ask you guys this is that um as we look forward what do you see, uh, would you characterize yourself as optimist or pessimist with respect to uh, the likelihood we can bring together uh, these dynamics, that we can ameliorate some of this polarization? Um, so, uh, Jeff, let's begin with you. Um, pessimist or optimist along those lines? Well, I guess I'll split the difference and say I'm, I'm optimistic that we're moving in the right direction in some ways, although... I'm pessimistic in the sense that that the issues we're talking about are so deeply woven into the fabric of our society that they will um, they won't be addressed quickly by any means. But I think what I'm encouraged by is that we are talking more about collective memory and the issue of national identity, which is where I think you know we, we have to be paying more attention. And this is coming up, for example, in reckoning with the commemorative landscape and um, the values we we extol through the veneration of this or that figure or or how we can recontextualize our history to tell a different national story and perhaps create a, a different national future. And I want to, uh, you, you know, your, your question began with the importance of history. And earlier I was talking about the denial of political recognition historically and today for people of color and other disenfranchised groups. But um, at the same time, we have to, and David spoke to some of this, we also have to ask how this history and its legacy relates to the political socialization of white populations. And there's some really important work on this. And I'm going to mention one study by my former colleague, Kitty Calavita, who wrote about the racial history of immigration law, you know, which is not about immediately about voting rights. But what she, uh, what she points out is that because this nation's history of immigration law is one where explicitly and then in more subtle ways, whiteness was defined as the sort of criteria for belonging. She argues that um, that immigration law has 
played an important role in the political socialization of white Americans. She describes it as kind of um, reinforcing this notion that white people are, quote, masters of national space. And that reverberates in all kinds of ways, including the kind of over-policing that, and under-protection that we see and the role of civilians in that. W.E.B. Du Bois in The Souls of White Folks, uh, this essay he published in a, in, a, in a book called Darkwater, also wrote about the white ethos of ownership um, resulting from structural racism. He, t- he describes this, and others have written about this, as a whiteness, as a kind of notion of dominion he has this wonderful quote where he says, but what on earth is whiteness that one should so desire it? He's asking himself. And then always somehow, some way I'm given to understand that whiteness is the ownership of the earth forever and ever. Amen. Now, if, if this is the understanding of whiteness explicitly or consciously or subconsciously that many white Americans have, we can see how, why it is the case that, you know, as social scientists have shown recently, many whites view equal rights as a zero-sum proposition. If others are going to gain rights, that means I'm going to lose my legitimate rights. I'm also thinking here of, of you know, uh, Aimé Césaire's work on colonialism. We talked about the boomerang effect of colonialism, where brutalization comes back to degrade humanity itself. And I would say also, you know, so the brutalization of select populations defining populations as non-human and subjecting them to human rights violations and so forth ultimately degrades humanity itself. And I would say that targeted political corruption comes back to corrupt all of our politics. I think we're we're dealing with that um, today. So I'm optimistic in the sense that we're having more conversations about this, but I'm, I'm also mindful of how deeply rooted these problems of national identity and politics are. Interesting. Um, David, what is your um, take on this? And you can respond uh, to whatever aspects of Jeff's um, issues that he brought up. But along the optimism, pessimism spectrum, where would you fall? Yeah, like Jeff, I think I might kind of split it in the middle. I don't typically uh, favor both and explanations, but I but I feel like, you know, given Jeff's talking about the the sense of of white dominion and ownership, the sense of of constituting the the political body through the sense. I mean, clearly, the dismantling of that is something that almost definitionally is going to come with significant conflict and growing pains. And growing pains is a very kind way to say it. But this is not something that will just dissolve because you know either a particular uh, politician is elected to office or um, you know, there, there's uh, particular policies that are passed, the, these kinds of things. And so I'm encouraged by the fact that we've made sufficient progress to really bring about this sort of backlash effect. You know, I think that in a lot of ways, what we've been seeing over the last few years is really a product of the progress that has been made uh, more generally around inclusion or at least a recognition of the need for inclusion. Um, and so there's a long way to go in that sense. But the fact that there have been gains in that sense, I think, have created the basis for this much deeper polarization in this case. And so, you know, I'm optimistic about the fact that we're at least far enough along to be bringing out these cleavages and conflicts at this point. 
Um, you know, the the more pessimistic side of this from my end is that, you know, when we look back through history, and I know Jeff and I have done work that have tried to examine this in a variety of forms, and we look at uh, political power over time as it's been racialized, um, there is a significant power and resilience to white supremacy across generations. And, you know, you can look back and you can see um, the variety of means through which we've seen these retrenchments, these reactions to gains for inclusion and a way to kind of solidify these boundaries. And, you know, that maybe the concrete instantiation of this or these voting rights restrictions, et cetera. Um, but, you know, Brian Stevenson, uh, director of the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, says repeatedly uh, slavery didn't end, it just evolved. And so we have these systems of power that are quite resilient. And I think it's really important to recognize this and to uh, understand the, the daunting task that goes well beyond just uh, achieving greater racial consciousness, let's say, and really attacking these bases of power that undergird these kinds of things. And so any pessimism I have is just about the resilience of those structures of power and what it might mean to actually proceed and dismantle those. I want to shift the conversation for the last part of this podcast to uh, more of a forward-looking perspective. So what would it take for people to feel like they're part of our democracy? You know, if we're going to look forward and think of some specific things that we could at least try, um, if it was up to you, what would you suggest as some um, remedies or at least things to try to um, to fix some of these problems? Well, I think I think uh, maybe I would start by recommending that people watch the four-part documentary "Exterminate All of the Brutes," which is this incredible film that's come out recently that capsulizes this crisis of um, a white supremacist world system we've inherited, you know, continue to kind of embody and reproduce. You know, why I'm starting here is because I guess one thing we have to do is address the problem of uh, historical ignorance. And, you know, if we are going to make some significant and sustainable strides in, in addressing these issues, we have to understand what the issues are and how we've gotten here. We have this problem of of ungovernable whiteness in our polity that is rooted in this idea of dominion I was talking about before, and it's it's like a Frankenstein, you know, that's been created in our own and in, 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 in global political culture. It's a it's a kind of monster defying containment and defying reform. How do we and so to to address that, I think we have to first of all understand understand it. And by we, I mean, in particular, white folks need to um, really grapple with this. I think in doing so, there will be an increased realization of the interests uh, white, white Americans and others have in disavowing white supremacy and white racial dominance of political and other institutional contexts of the hoarding of opportunity you know, which is rationalized by this idea that, you know, that there's some kind of collective benefit. But I think, I think there is, I'm encouraged by the increased discussion of the ways that the politics of whiteness um, harm white populations. I'm thinking, for example, of, of Jonathan Metzl's work, Dying of Whiteness, which shows how white political behavior rooted in racial animus and resentment, anxiety, is contributing to premature death among white Americans vis-a-vis -vis 
policy positions on issues like gun control and health care reform. I, I think if we continue to have those conversations, some of these issues will be addressed because people's political identities and behaviors will shift. Interesting. David, I'd like to get your take on this. Um, so moving forward, how would you see things uh, possibly improving and what would be your recommendations? Well, I, I appreciate a lot of what Jeff was just saying. And I also uh, appreciate how it links back to his earlier mention of the commemorative landscape. And when we see struggles over uh, commemorative objects and the way in which we remember history, you know, Jeff was talking quite a bit about uh, the historical ignorance that kind of undergirds a lot of the ideology here. Um, and when we see struggles over monuments, whether it be the Confederacy or other symbols of white supremacy, um, efforts to really not just shift our history, but really understand the power of canonical American history, traditionally canonical American history, and what that signals and, and renders silent uh, around these kinds of racial histories. And so, you know, I, I always feel like, and, and both Jeff and I with, with a set of other colleagues have been trying to work on and kind of understand struggles over the commemorative landscape and how monuments work and how, why they matter. And, you know, they're, they're sites within a community that are public. And, you know, a lot of people, will say, well, fundamentally, at the end of the day, do they matter that much? Do people really notice these kinds of things? But what they really are are sites for mobilization. When people want to make political claims, they can use these aspects of the landscape to render certain ideas legitimate or illegitimate. And so, you know, what, what I think is really important is, is some of the evolving understandings of how that matters, how our landscape matters. Um, but also the the deeper ways in which we seek to engage with this. You know, I think um, one version of these debates are uh, what should we remove and what might we want to add to the landscape? But one thing that I think is important, too, is to think more holistically about how these objects and how these sites speak to each other. Um, and one of my favorite things, Jeff's probably sick of hearing me talk about it, but one of my kinds of favorite things to talk about in this way is a particularly important intersection in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, and this is really an iconic area. So this is Dexter Avenue that, that its terminus is the Alabama state capitol. Um, and the state capitol there, of course, is where generations of segregationist uh, governors resided. So George Wallace, maybe most famously throughout the civil rights era. Dexter Avenue, though, is also where Dexter Avenue Baptist Church is, where Dr. King was preaching when he was in Montgomery in the, in the later 1950s. Um, and you can see these buildings from each other. You can see the church from the Capitol and vice versa. And in that intersection, when you're right even with Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, if you look across the street, you see a stone that was placed there in 1942, and it celebrates the inauguration of Jefferson Davis. So Montgomery was the first capital of the Confederacy, and Jefferson Davis was inaugurated there. Um, and that stone remains there today. But rather than removing it, what ended up happening more recently, about 15 years ago, is an equivalent twin stone was placed on the other side of the street. It looks just like it. It was placed there 57 years later than the Jefferson Davis stone. And this is a monument to a, a commemoration of the Selma to Montgomery Voting Rights March. Um, and what's interesting to me is how the placement of that second stone speaks to, critiques, and ideally invalidates 
the sentiment and the idea behind the Jefferson Davis stone. And, and why it does that isn't just the fact that these are twin stones that we can see as related to each other, but when you see the overall surroundings in that intersection, and one of the things that they've done in Montgomery is replace crosswalks there, the painted crosswalks, rather than just the hatched lines, there are footprints, there are people walking. So you see this, and they're walking in the exact same direction as the uh, voting rights march came because this was the end of the Selvin of Montgomery Voting Rights March. And so the idea here is that these objects are speaking to each other and critiquing each other, um, but that is not a symmetric process. This is not a process where ideally people can decide, I'm going to look at the object on the right side of the street and other people will say, I want to celebrate the object to the, on the left side of the street and everyone kind of gets their space. The point really is to use one to critique the other and to undermine the history of the other. If we, if we had removed the Jefferson Davis object, it wouldn't have that critical dialogue moving in that direction. So my point isn't that everything should remain standing because that clearly isn't the solution here, but to think about the landscape as speaking to other aspects of itself and using that as a way to institutionalize the dismantling of this historical ignorance that Jeff's talking about. And, you know, I think that that is something that I find really encouraging because I think people are increasingly thinking in more holistic and sophisticated ways about the work that this landscape can do to kind of aid these political efforts. Interesting. David, you mentioned the historical and psychological importance of monuments um, in, in these issues. And although this is a simplification, Washington, D.C., uh, because of the, for many reasons, is symbolically and literally um, the the center of our country, politically speaking, certainly. Um, as many of our listeners know, there's been a recent set of developments about making Washington, D.C. our 51st state. Now, there have been many attempts in the past to um, have this happen, but this is the first time to get through the House of Representatives. So um, in the closing part of our podcast, I'd like both of you just to talk a little bit about the larger issues that are raised about this debate. In other words, the fact that Washington, D.C. is not our 51st state, what does that tell us about the dynamics of race and politics in the United States? So, Jeff, why don't we begin with you? Well, I think this the specific history of D.C. statehood and, and uh, the struggle to recognize D.C. as a state is, is one that I, I know very little about. I think the some of the general themes we've talked about, though, are clearly relevant here in the, you know, for, uh, one of the things I've noticed in the recent debate is the, the unease that uh, far-right conservatives have expressed regarding this form of enfranchising um, recognition of D.C. as a state. Of course, D.C. is a majority black population, would be majority Democrat. And the the reactions I've noticed, uh, some of the reactions I've noticed are ones that sort of lean on this idea of, again, these not being the normal people, the people who to whom our government has uh, obligations and so I think I think the the movement to recognize DC as a state and to address the legitimate interests of uh, DC residents and, and more robust representation is obviously something that should be um, should be supported. And I think it it is 
something that we could appreciate alongside a slew of other things, including what David was talking about in terms of the reckoning with the memorial landscape. In Washington, D.C., not only have there been efforts to address the, uh, the, the sort of monuments and memorials, but also the very important development of the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. You know, uh, I guess what I'm wanting to stress is that these, that ideally these policy discussions and, and uh, reform efforts be understood together rather than apart, because I think looking forward, we have to hope for is that we can create a, a social structure that sustains a different way of understanding who we are as a nation, who belongs, um, whose voices matter. And that requires, um, you know, a number that, that can be aided by a number of efforts. I'll just mention one other that comes to mind here, which is the college board apparently fast-tracking AP African American Studies for the high school level. Now, this is a this has the possibility of helping to address some of the issues of historical ignorance we talked about, and also shifting the the political socialization of of all of our uh, residents, including you know, youth uh, who have historically not been exposed to these critical. Um, ways of understanding. And it's and it's telling here that the same people opposing DC statehood are people who are insisting that the 1619 project not be taught in public schools. And you know, so there is this resistance at the same time as they're resisting statehood, they're resisting these uh interventions in our national story and in, in, in collective memory that that promise to 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 transform our political culture in in progressive ways. Interesting. David, what's your take on this? Well, I, th I think it's really important what Jeff was saying, both about uh, the, the stakes of the resistance to this kind of move, as well as the promise of actually implementing it. Because I think it's really easy to boil this down to what might look like a partisan strategic debate uh, in a very evenly divided Congress, especially the Senate. The idea of having another state can really tip that balance. And so we can think of it as just a pragmatic back and forth. But really, as Jeff's saying, this is this is speaking directly to a lot of the broader issues of race and representation that we've been talking about throughout. Um, and, you know, I feel like we've been bombarded certainly over the last four years uh, with critique, political critique of cities, you know, so cities have become basically a, a coded dog whistle way to think about more diverse populations and large concentrations of people of color. Um, and when we think about DC as, as a state unto itself, we're really kind of mapping on the ideal of a city to uh, the representation of a state. Um, and so when, when we think about uh, the composition of DC and the power that that citizenry would have if they were uh, granted statehood, you know, I think it really plays into all the fears and the threats and the grievances um, and these really partisan boundaries that are being set here about who rightfully should be part of the citizenry who should be represented uh, electorally and otherwise. And so, you know, I feel like this is a really important debate right now 
um, because it'll have political impacts, but also because it says a lot about where we are today and hopefully where we might be in the future in terms of thinking about who should rightfully be represented uh, in our polity and through our electoral process. Great. Well, that is about all the time we have today for our podcast. And uh, Jeff and David, I really appreciate you um, joining our podcast. And so it's been a pleasure. And I know we could have covered far more ground if we had more time, but I really appreciate you joining us. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the American Democracy Lab to hear more from other expert guests who will be addressing issues affecting our American democracy. 